1: Hello and welcome to Second Chance, a podcast that explores the notion of second chance. What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is worthy of a second chance? I'm Raphael Rowe, and in this episode, I'm joined by John James Chalmers, aka JJ Chalmers, a former Royal Marine Commando who suffered life-changing injuries from a bomb blast that claimed the lives of two of his close friends in Afghanistan. Since his recovery, JJ has gone on to become a television presenter, a public speaker, and Invictus Games medalist as well as being friends with Prince Harry, he has recently been confirmed as one of the stars taking part on Strictly Come Dance in 2020. I first met this man on a pilgrimage, believe it or not, a religious pilgrimage, they didn't want to call it, but it was for the BBC. And I admired this guy, from the moment I met him, um, because he has an extraordinary story. This podcast is about people's second chance. And the reason I wanted to speak to you is because I think you epitomise, you you know, that very second chance in many different aspects, you you know, but let's go back to the beginning. So you were a young man who was in the army, and you were in um, Afghanistan. Tell me Tell me your story, JJ. So for people that don't know who I'm talking to, the hero, that's just one of your titles. You know, there's plenty more. I remember I, and I should say this. I remember when we were sort of doing this pilgrimage weeks in, you, you kept referring to people as legends. That was one of those sounds I always heard come out of your mouth. Oh, you're a legend, man, but you're a legend in your own right. And that starts, I think from an horrific incident that set you up. In a way that you least expected. So, please just share with us your story.
2: Yeah. So, I, I was a Royal Marine Commando. Uh, I joined the Royal Marines at the age of 17, straight out of school, uh, and I served for you know a number of years. But the sort of the pinnacle of my career came in 2011 when I was 23 years old, uh, and I've you know as you as you say, I was serving in Afghanistan. Uh, I was in Helmand Province, and I was you know I was right on the front line in, in, in the thick of it. Which is exactly where I wanted to be. Um, You know, I joined the Marines for a whole heap of reasons. uh, You know, in terms of you know wanting to serve, wanting to give something to my community, uh, but also you know that I suppose in some ways the sense of adventure and and the challenge that comes with that. And you know, I was really you know it was arguably up to that point it was clearly the most challenging thing I'd ever faced in my life. Um, But yeah, in in May of two thousand eleven, my 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 team of about 10 of us, uh, we were tasked with clearing a suspected bomb making factory uh, and we were conducting a sort of clearance of this, you know, compound in the middle of nowhere, Afghanistan, um, as we say, which we suspected the IEDs were being built in, the improvised explosive devices. Sometimes they get called roadside bombs uh, sort of in the press. And and they were, you know, they were the most deadly thing in Afghanistan. You know, 90 something percent of our casualties um, were were coming from, you know, these crudely made bombs and when i say crude um i mean that they're made out of household objects you know bits of copper wire and ballpoint pens and fertilizer to make up the homemade explosives but actually they're quite sophisticated in the way that they targeted us but on the flip side they were completely indiscriminate you know it wasn't just guys like me that were getting hurt by these things there was you know people on their way to work there was farmers working in their fields and and kids on the way to school um so you know as I say, our job was to try and shut down this factory so that, you know, these indiscriminate weapons wouldn't be in the area.
1: Were you trained to to dismantle bombs or secure the area so that people who were trained to do that could go in and do it?
2: Yeah, exactly. So if you've ever seen the, the movie Hurt Locker, it's a, which is about the EOD teams, the explosive ordnance disposal teams, those are the guys that will actually come in and dig the thing up. Or blow it up. actually, they tended to want to dig them up so that they could get them out the ground. They could identify them, and they could sort of figure out who'd built them and how they built them. Uh, it was like CSI Natty Alley where we were. You know, they, they, you know, they wanted to exploit them, as we called it. But in order to get one of these teams to come out, because there, you know there's only a handful of them, to get one, of, and, and these things are everywhere. So to, to get one of these teams to come forward to your location and actually clear something, you had to what do we call it? We had to confirm it. So you had to confirm it by two means. And so that was either that you'd had like a positive sense on the metal detector. So you were fairly sure that you had like a large reading on the metal detector. But actually, you, what you really needed to do was get your eyes on it. So that was our job to basically get down on our belt buckles, lie on our face, get out our bayonet or a paintbrush or whatever it was and expose just enough of it that you could say, yeah, this is absolutely an IED and not just a you know, one of my friends spent an hour clearing one once, and found eventually it was just a tuna, a tin of t- tuna pasta, or <laughs> a, you know, a tuna chunks. Sorry, and he, you know, he was life or death, and then at the end he was like, "Ah!" So yeah, so our job, as I say, would have been to identify these, you know, these devices, and then get someone forward to deal with them. But you know, ultimately, we cleared this compound and deemed it to be completely safe. Because, you know, these things are so sneaky and they've got minimum metal content in them. You know, they're made out of, predominantly made out of wood, believe it or not. And even the amount of copper wire they've got in them is so small that a metal detector just doesn't pick them up. So they were so sophisticated. Um, And ultimately, we had to get lucky. You know, we were extremely well trained, but there's an element of luck because you've you've got to nail it every single time. And with a with a weapon like that, they just need to seed the ground with them, and you, you. It's all about rolling the dice, basically. You know, every time we stepped out of the stepped out of the, our checkpoint, we were rolling the dice, and the more times you roll it, you know, the, the, the likely your chance of losing is, unfortunately. But you can't be paralyzed by the fear of these things. You still got to put one foot in front of the other and, and continue, and so. Yes, on this day, while we were searching this bomb making factory, it was a Friday afternoon in Afghanistan, one o'clock. And, you know, the situation I'd been in that week, we'd been heavily kinetic. You know, we'd, we'd had a lot of, you know, we'd been fighting the Taliban back from our checkpoint. You know, it was it was as crazy as the one percent of war gets. Um, but actually, that was completely normal. That was exactly where my life was meant to be at that point. So, you know, I look back at it now and it's quite extraordinary. But at the time, it was not extraordinary at all. What was extraordinary is what came after, which is bang. And the next thing you know, I'm lying on my back and I am in more pain than I hope to ever experience in my life again. You know, I just, I I, I just, yeah, every single inch of me just felt like it was on fire, basically, which is not a pleasant experience, as you can imagine.
1: (laughs) This was you stepping on the IED. This was you being blown up. Um, at the location that you went to secure, your roll of the dice had come in, as you say, JJ.
2: Yeah, that's it, essentially. Now, the one thing is that I hadn't stepped on it. No, my 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 friend had stepped on the device. So it went off underneath his feet uh, and tragically took his life. And when I say it took his life, you know, whilst, whilst our guys, you know, and I'll get onto my part of it, but, but whilst our guys who responded to it, you know, there were there were two fatal well, two fatalities right there and then there were marines and then our afghan interpreter later died in hospital as well um but the guys that responded to it you know and about half of our multiple of 10 were were injured uh or, you know and then the other half were still alive so you know it was it was serious odds that they were fighting against and they they tried to you know they they did first aid on all of us but on these guys till the helicopter came and they were gone but in reality, they had lost their lives immediately. You know, the, the magnitude of this explosion and the area that we were sort of caught in, the, these guys stood absolutely no chance. And it just, you know, it it took their life immediately. Um, but as I say, I was talking to them. So I was just that little bit further away, maybe as much as 10 feet, but maybe a little less. And you know, when, when these explosions go off, uh, they come from the ground because that's where they're buried. And they kind of come up in a sort of uh, conical shape and like an ice cream cone shape. Um, And they chuck all that rubbish that's buried on top of them. And this is, you know, the height of summer, 40, 50 degrees heat. The ground is baked so hard, it might as well be concrete. And so when this stuff goes flying, you know, it's going at hundreds of miles an hour. And that's what hit me. I just got, you know... bludgeoned, you know, it's like a, an old, you know, an old world stoning is what it was, but it, I was just getting battered all in a split second. And it, you know, it, it it did the worst of the damage to my arms, but it did my legs, my face, my neck was broken. Obviously my eardrums were burst, you know, the the lot. It, I had a sort of a decent A4 piece of papers worth of, you know, listed damage done to me. Um, but, you know, I survived.
1: That's an incredible story. And to recount it, what, what does it feel like? I mean, you've told this story, no doubt, many times. But I, I can imagine recounting this moment um, in your life, which has pivotally changed your life dramatically in many, many different ways. What does it feel like telling your story every time you tell your story, JJ? Because I'm sure you don't become complacent and you don't become, I mean, you probably become less emotional, don't you? I don't know, because you lost a number of colleagues that day and also what sounds like the, the job that you'd always wanted to do, the work that was important to you, the making a difference. I suppose, first
2: of all, it depends who I'm telling the story to. You know, I, I, I'm very aware that, first of all, there is a lot of people who've been through circumstances like mine, whether that's in a war zone or not, but have lived through, an, you know, an, an epic circumstance. And, you know, as we'll get into later, has grown as a, uh, grown as a result of it and improved as a person as a result of it. I'm very fortunate, however, that I can share that. And there's lots of people who have lived through extraordinary things that can't share it and so there 's a lot of benefit that comes from sharing it, whether that 's you know an understanding of you know the situation that we are in, a better understanding of the Afghan conflict, what it means to be in the armed forces, and the truth you know or, or certainly my truth of what it 's like to be you know serve in the military, but also you know the, the positivity that can come out of something so atrocious. So again it you know it depends who I'm sharing it with and obviously I'm sharing on this platform and I'm sure you'll have you know knowing you and you know the people that follow you know follow you as a result I'm sure that they, they they'll gain a lot from hearing this and so I'm I'm more than happy to share that because I can and I know that others can't um, and then you know sharing it with a mate is always a great thing you know it's all, you know it's lovely to catch up and it's good to you know just just as I'm you know just as I am as, as fascinated by your incredible story you know, the tales themselves are remarkable, but it's actually, it's what comes after and how it shapes you as a person that I think is even more incredible. Because on the surface, you would look at mine and just think mine is a story of pure tragedy, but it's not. Because, you know, so much good has come as a result of it, because I've changed physically and my life has changed so much, but I'm still the same bloke that I was back then. And what I mean by that is, I'm still just a big kid idiot. You no, know? I'm just, I'm just, you know me. I'm just JJ.
1: I know exactly what you mean. And there's a couple of things there. I think the first thing is you talk about people sort of bounce back, but not everybody does, JJ. You know, there are many stories of those who turn to alcohol, to drugs, or they just because of the injuries or because of the psychological damage of whatever they're experienced, They're unable. They don't have the resilience. And we'll come on to that. But do you feel that there is given people lost their lives on that day and you survived? Do you feel? Have you ever felt that once you recovered, and I know the story of your recovery, and again, it's another remarkable story where they had to rebuild you, but do you feel that you found that, that deep resilience within you in that hospital bed because there was a bigger
2: purpose than you just surviving? So I was, I was, on, I was in a coma for about a week after I'd been blown up, induced coma. They flew me back to the UK, so I woke up in Birmingham. Uh, and by that point, you know, to put put it in some sort of term of reference, they kind of done the they'd done the, the, you know the the first fix of my body. Eg, they would fixed the you know the, my bones, and they kind of you know rebuilt parts of me, my elbow and, and and things like that. But my body was still full of wounds and full of holes. So there was still a lot of plastic surgery to come. You know, still lots of work. In fact, years of work. But in that point in time, I woke up in ICU and. Uh, you know, the thing you got to understand about being in a coma is that I closed my eyes in Afghanistan and opened them like it was like a blink. Now, I know I knew roughly what happened to me because I could remember the point of being blown up. But really, I just blinked and I was in a different room and I was in a hospital. Now, I could appreciate I was in a hospital, but I thought I was still in Afghanistan. I thought it was maybe an hour later. Um, but reality is this is a week and I've flown halfway around the world. Um, so it took me a few days to sort of gain my bearings and get used to this. You know, the, the fact that, you know, as you mentioned, even that my career was over, you know, I was in a very dark place that that I all of a sudden I'd gone from being as physically fit as I'd ever been at the pinnacle of my career to now I'm ahead in a bed just being fed through tubes, you know, being washed and, you know, n- nursed by you know, the healthcare workers or my family, my incredible wife. You know, so I've, I've never been so dependent in my entire life. And so it was, you know, in it was horrible. And I was in so much pain. It was horrible. But after about four or five days or something like that, as I lay there, kind of staring up at the sky, I kind of started to piece things together. And I remembered when I was blown up, there'd been a point when I was lying there and my friends had given me first aid and they'd done everything they could for me. And they said to me, JJ, that's, that's all we can do for you right now, mate. We've got to go deal with the other lads. And I remember in that moment thinking, please don't leave me. But but at the same time, knowing they needed to go, they needed to to, 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 to deal with these other lads. And they told me to keep screaming so that they knew I was still alive, I was still with them, you know, just keep talking to them. Uh, and, you know, screaming when you're in that situation is is a natural instinct. So that was all right. But what what the important thing about that was, that it meant that you know, two weeks later, when I was, you know, finally sort of putting putting pieces together, I thought to myself, well, if they said there's other lads, where are they? Where are those blokes? Now, one of my mates was in a hospital bed next to me. He'd lost his leg. And I went, Well, it's not just cass, because you know, they 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 would have said we need to go deal with cass. You know, there's another lad injured here. It was clear that other people had been hurt and not you know, there was more than just just one other. And so I began to ask the questions as to you know what had happened, who you know, who had been hurt, where were you know, where were the other lads? And that's when they broke the news to me that that um you know that my friend Sam and Ollie had been killed and our and our interpreter Abdullah had been killed. And so at that point, you know, I knew I knew I was lucky to be alive, you know, from pretty much the moment when the bomb went off. And and at that point, you know, that's when I decided you know, you've got two two choices, basically. You either lay in a hospital bed and you feel sorry for yourself, which, you know, I'm not inclined to do anyway, because it's a miserable place, hospital. But the other option is obviously to do everything you possibly can to get better. And and that is, you know, listen to the doctors, the nurses, do your physio, work as hard as you can, eat the right things, it's a number of things. But, you know, you you can choose to cut corners even. But I was like, I cannot cut corners here. And I've got to get better and, you know, make something of my life here.
1: Having dealt with the the reality of your your friends being killed, that you uh, uh, had become um, injured in this blast, there was the injuries you sustained. So just paint the picture of the injuries that you had to overcome in order to take the next step in your life.
2: You know, I was lying there on the ground in Afghanistan. I could tell that pretty much every inch of my body was, you know, was hurting. And, and, I, and at that point, I'd already seen my arms, for example. I tried to give myself first aid. So I'd already seen that you know, my right arm was more or less gone um, because, you know, I went to use it and it just was hanging off. Uh, you know, all the fingers on my left hand had come off at that point. You know, or were just barely hanging on. Um, and, and I could feel that my legs were throbbing. I could feel my face had been crushed. And so, you know, when I got flown home uh, and my family, kind of through the through the almost sort of Chinese whispers nature of the passage of information, it had gone from these are the injuries and then the next person had heard next person. So by the time it got to my family, it was kind of, oh, he's broken his arm and he's flying home, is kind of what they were told. Um, although they did know that I was very seriously injured. That's what I was classified as. Um but, you know, again, you know, to my family, what does that mean? What does that mean when someone comes knocking at your door and says your son's very seriously injured? I mean, who knows what that means? Anyway, so they they when they flew me back and I was in my coma, you know, the, the team from the plane that had flown me back, the medical team, you know, spoke to my family and they said, we're going to start at the bottom and work our way up here. And they said, you know, starting from his knees up to his, you know, up to his groin, he is full of holes you know he is full of uh, you know damage that had come from fragmentation all his rocks and stuff you know slammed into my legs and and the big thing with that is it is full of infection and whilst he's alive at this point that's the bit that could kill him still you know and that's you're not out of the woods from that for you know a, a solid week or so until they get all that rubbish all that debris out of you and then working up, as I say, my right arm had more or less come off. My my right elbow had been just completely decimated, and they you know put it back together with Meccano and whatnot. But you know when when you watch the movies and you see a guy kind of get blown up and he shakes it off, you know it's all nonsense because you know the, the the broken bone is one thing, but on top of that, you know you know my my arteries were damaged, my nerves were damaged. You know I had nerve damage that took two or three years worth of growth of nerves restemming. You know, a nerve only grows at one millimeter a day. So they can measure that 600 millimeters of it had been damaged. So that's two years right there until you may or may not get the function back. So, you know, huge amounts of nerve damage in both arms. You know, as I say, my fingers smashed. My face had been crushed. So my whole eye socket was just, you know, fl- kind of flattened back. But, you know, the kind of positive news is, People slam their faces off steering wheels and motorbikes all the time. So they're actually really good at fixing faces. That's quite a common thing. Uh, whereas, you know, not many people survive all the other stuff that had happened to me. Um, and yeah, and, and I'd broken my neck as well. You know, the blast had thrown me back and I kind of, you know, the back of my helmet had clipped the very top of my spine. But, you know, they'd known that I'd moved my limbs when I was in Afghanistan. So they were pretty confident that when I woke up, that would be Okay. Uh, and then the biggest part of it all is that I would spend nine weeks in hospital doing, you know, and when you're, when you've sustained that level of trauma and you cannot get out of a hospital bed and you're completely inactive and more importantly, your body is having to heal. you They were putting 10,000 calories into me via tubes and that still wasn't enough to to facilitate the amount of healing that my body needed to do. So your body is just eating itself, you know, I'd gone from like, you know, a, I was an Adonis, you know, I was physically fit. And all of a sudden, you know, with, I remember my one of my first physio sessions, they asked me to stand on my tiptoes. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't stand on my tiptoes. That's how physically weak I was. And before that, I used to jump out of helicopters and kick indoors and run marathons. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what I was facing. And as I say, that was a fairly bleak outcome. And as you mentioned, the career that I loved more than anything in the world, was clearly gone and it was really tough you know I, I said to them I was like oh you know I'll, I'll work in the I'll work in the stores or you could know, put me in the careers office I'll do anything to stay in the Marines and they said to me well we did that for lads a couple of years ago when they first you know we started getting these injuries and they said after a year or so they realized that's not why they joined the Marines you know they didn't join it to do those jobs and so what they did is they ended up leaving but they didn't take the benefit of the time to one recover properly and two, do resettlement, as we would call it, find a new career, find a new purpose, because you've got a whole life ahead of you. And so it was really difficult to hear, but they were like, "Your career is over, and you need to start again." Basically, they said they said they'd help me do that, but it was a it, they were you know they pulled the bandage off, and I'm grateful for them to do that. So that, that's what I'm lying in a hospital bed thinking to myself. And as I say, you've got the choice. You know that there's that route, or there's the feel sorry for yourself and lie in a hospital bed. Sam and Ollie didn't get that choice. Why should I have that choice? I've been given a golden ticket. I've been given the second chance. You've got no excuse other than to just make, you know, make damn well sure that you, the day comes and you know, you, you know my religious standpoint, Raph, I'm kind of here and there on it. But if the day comes, that I, you know, I get to the pearly gates and my mates are there waiting for me. I want them to look at me and go, you know what, mate, you did all right. You know, you, you you lived a couple of lives and you did it for us. Um, and if I'm not making the most of every opportunity that's afforded to me, then pff, they're looking down on me and, well, shoes on the other foot, I'd be pissed off if they weren't making the most of it.
1: And I'm sure that they'll they have a bottle of champagne when you do arrive. Three years, to, correct me if I'm wrong, three years after these horrific injuries and, and after everything you had to deal with physically recovering – you know, rebuilding your relationship with your family and friends who I'm sure wanted to do everything for you. You know, a lot of your self-independence had been ripped away from you in, in different ways. And you have, you know, I can't imagine. But three years on, you were winning medals at um, sporting events. So let's fast forward to that. How did that even come about? Because a moment ago, you couldn't get up on your tippy toes. And now... You're winning medals at, I believe, the Invictus Games.
2: Once you get out of hospital, that first nine weeks, they send you to a place called Headley Court, which is the sort of the rehabilitation centre for all British armed forces. And it is, you know, it was the, at the time, it was the greatest recovery centre probably in the world. And, you know, the, you, are, you are just beasted, you know, in, in, is the simple way of putting it. You know, the, the days are broken up. You're there for sort of four weeks and your days are broken up into... Everything from, you know, just simple circuit training to, you know, absolutely tailor-made weights training and whatever it is, you know, physical, you know, physical sort of gym time that is built to, you know, each individual, they look at you and go, well, you you can't do that, you can do this, you do this, and they find a way of thrashing you. And then on top of that, you're doing physio, you're doing occupational therapy, you're spending time with social workers, you know, you're seeing a mental health specialist, you know, they just, it's a whole, they're treating the entire person. But the other thing is, it's just full of blokes that are doing the exact same thing and might have been doing it for two or three years before you. And so you can begin to see the guy that was you two years before. And now he's thinking about going to compete at the London 2012 Paralympics. And you're thinking, all right, well, actually you know, there is opportunities here. All these doors that have closed, they're suddenly, you know, there's probably more doors than ever. Particularly at that time in history when, you know, the, the things like Help for Heroes is sort of now matured and, and opportunities, you know, people, the, out, the outpour of public support was the greatest that it ever could be. So there was amazing opportunities, you know, from, the, from charities in particular to support us and, and, and have us take on new endeavors. And so the Invictus Games came at a point you know, Prince Harry formed the Invictus Games in 2014. And we just thought it was going to be like a sports day. Now, obviously, we know now that it's, you know, it's an all singing, all dancing on the BBC. You know, it's, it was one of the, you know, largest adapted sports competitions in the world. But, you know, we we were all kind of, you know, we were all physically fit again to some degree, but we were kind of, we were, we were circling. You know, we were sort of, well, we're all kind of fit again, but what, what do we do with this? And also, what do we... You know, we were in the business of proving to ourselves that we were better, I suppose. You know, we needed that mission, that goal, that thing which the military gave us in spades. You know, we literally had a mission that day and I was out, you know, trying to succeed at it. And so I needed some, you know, I needed a big shiny carrot to sort of chase towards. And the Invictus Games just fell in my lap. Uh, and so I took up cycling, you know, recumbent cycling, which is a sort of specially adapted trike that I ride, uh, powered by my legs, but, you know, I kind of laid back when I'm riding it. And that was it. You know, I was just, boom. I suppose two things happened. One, I was quite lucky. I was involved in sort of the promotion of it, which, you know, led to my career in the media that kind of comes after. But but the big thing and from a physical point of view, I suppose, was that, you know, I had my mission. And so I had a reason to get out of bed in the morning and I had a reason to beast myself, you know, and a reason to go, oh, it's raining today. Oh, maybe I should just skip. No, you don't skip. You don't, you know, you, you you get out there and you thrash yourself. And that's, that was that was me again. And so I was rediscovering exercise. I was rediscovering, you know, challenge. But I suppose what I was rediscovering more than anything was being back in a team, you know, wearing a British uniform again and suddenly having, you know, having something bigger than me, in fact. You know, I wanted to represent my nation. I wanted to do my mates proud. You know, and I wanted to be there to support them and be in it together um and 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 you know the other the other factor that drives me other than the lads that i've spoken about is obviously my family uh, and and for that the doctors the nurses everybody that's had some input to putting me back together i wanted to go on this big shiny competition that was on the telly hopefully win a medal which i did and be able to look look literally the moment that i won my medal and i was stood on the podium i was looking up cuz my wife my best mate's wife, the lad that saved my life, were, were stood looking down on me from this, you know, from not, not in, the, not in the, the holy sense. They were actually stood on a balcony looking down at me. They, they were, were looking down at me. And I had my arms around two of my best mates, uh, that, you know, one with me. And I just, that was it. You know, this was, the, this, this, this was the moment that I could ride off into the sunset and go, something completely crap happened to you once upon a time. And look what you've managed to achieve.
1: But you didn't just win one medal, did you? You
2: won more than just one medal. So I won a gold medal in cycling and a bronze, um, and I also won uh, a bronze medal in the four x one hundred athletics. Now my, my my running career leaves a lot to be desired, but you know my cycling was, you know I was I was just getting back to the levels of fitness that I you know I, I you know knew I was capable of having, but hadn't had in a long time. And as I say, I was in this amazing team. And we were, yeah, we were thrashing it. We were just, it was, it was incredible. You know, they treated us like rock stars. And the other thing about it, I suppose, was that to see, you know, thousands of people lining, lining the track or, you know, in the stands, it just, it took my breath away, like, you know, and it made me so so proud of, you know, of, of our country for, for, you know, really standing up when, when we needed it.
1: And you mentioned at the beginning that that was created by Prince Harry, a man who I admire, you you know, I never met him, just seen bits and pieces. But from a standpoint of view, I, I admire his stance, the fact that he's, you know, gone in his own path to make his marriage and family work. Uh, and as a parent, I think he's, is he's, he's unbelievable. But you know him and you know him well and got to meet him through your work in the Invictus games. Um, that must be extraordinary because I, I suppose he pees and poos like everybody else. So, you know, but he is royalty. Um, and your relationship with him, has that been important to you or is he just like, like me, somebody you met on the journey?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you know what? Perfect. you you're exactly right because Yes, he's like you, somebody I've met on the journey, but at the same time, just like you, he's a person that I respect, you know, so much. Uh, and, you know, a person that I, that I in time, at, you know, certain points in my life, I will look to. Um, and so, you know, and I'll look to for support and for, you know, and to model myself after. So, you know, the, my my first impressions of him were, you know, he is, a, he, at the time, was a captain in the army. And so I treated him exactly like that because that's who he was. And so you know I called him sir, and you know, I, and I and I respected him because of his achievements up to that point: two tours in Afghanistan, uh, you know, one, you know, one fully on the front line, and then one as an Apache pilot, but one fully on the front line. Uh, and now here he is with this, you know, with this incredible platform to do anything. You know, if I was a prince, I'd probably be in a yacht in Saint Tropez. But here he was. Going well. I've got this influence. I've got this power. What am I going to do with it now? Obviously, he's used it to change my life through the Invictus Games, but he's done that for so many other causes. So, of course, I respect him because of that. And then I've got to know him as a person. And yeah, you know, the, more, the he's just as you say, he pees and poos like everybody else. And I find that remarkable because I've seen the world that he comes from. I've seen the the two extremes, the extreme privilege that comes from that. You know, of course, he doesn't want for anything really, and you know, he lives in a palace and all those things. But on the other end, he has very, or you know, it's changed now because he's taken control. But at the time, he had very little control of his life. You know, lots of press intrusion. I mean, the fact that he had to come back from Afghanistan early in his tour was because the media, you know, they ended the embargo. You know, uh, you know, whoever it was printed something in the security of him and of his friends that he was serving with, you know, was deemed too too great a risk and they pulled him out of that environment. And I know what it's like to be ripped out of that environment. My injuries aside, taking me out of Afghanistan broke my heart, you know, leaving my friends behind broke me in just as much as I I had been physically broken. And so he endured that. And so, so, you know, I've seen those extremes yet somehow there's a normal human being at the heart. and, you know, put it, put it in terms of the sort of remarkable nature of it all. Yes, he's a person I've met along the way and I, and I chalk him up as a mate and, I, you know, and I have a great laugh with him. But I suppose the moment when, a, you know, the invite to his wedding dropped through my door and I went to the wedding. That point is when I realised the the previous royal wedding, the Cambridges, you know, William and Kate's, I was in Afghanistan during that. I listened to it on a wind-up radio in our in our checkpoint in the middle of nowhere, and so somehow, as you say, within the space of that was 2011, wanted to get married. Was it last year or the year before? Yeah. In the space of seven years, I somehow managed to go from a dusty hole in the ground in Afghanistan to the to the royal wedding, and so yes, that moment. That's a pinch yourself moment.
1: It is a pinch yourself moment. The only wedding I've been invited to, um, but actually it wasn't a wedding of anyone famous. It was a funeral of Reggie Cray, the guy that I met in prison, you know. So there's the flip side of the coin. I'm invited to Reggie Cray, a notorious East End gangster. And you're off to Prince Harry's wedding your career didn't stop there though did it I mean you're rubbing shoulders with people like Prince Harry you become mates with somebody uh, as high profile as that but somebody who's making a difference um, and in Victor's Games as well as winning medals standing on the podium hugging your mates looking at your wife feeling very proud of your achievements do, do you believe that this was People giving you a second chance, JJ, or was this JJ standing up, heart pounding, head thinking, taking back control of your own life?
2: The t- the taking charge of my own life, of course, that's true, because that's the thing which, you know, was motivating me to get out there. But even those, you know, as I say, behind that motivation was actually I'm doing this for others. But, you know, the thing that I must make hugely clear is that I, I wouldn't have any of this if it wasn't for Thousands of people that, that absolutely gave me that second chance, you know, and, and well beyond second chances. You know, I, you know, surviving in the first instance only happened because of a handful of blokes, you know, and our medic has lost his leg. It happened because of a couple of 18, 19 year old lads with a bit of first aid training saved my life. Boom, there's your second chance. Then a helicopter crew came and gave me a second chance. Then I ended up in a hospital. And the surgeons gave me that second chance. And then I, you know, I keep going through those stages, you know, and, and I get pooped together by these hundreds of thousands of people. But on the flip side, that's why people talk about, you know, how do you have the courage to do what you did when you were in the military? When you really boil it down, the reason that I had the confidence to step and, you know, take one, you know, step out there and put myself out there and risk it all is because I knew that if it went wrong... Those people were there. I was at the pointy end of this, but actually there was a pyramid of people behind me. That 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 machine clicks in, and and they all you know you become the most important thing to them at that given time. And those are the people that saved my life along the way. And you know now, funnily enough, when I when I you know present on the telly, particularly when I do live telly, um, it's the same thing. You know why do I have the confidence to stand up there and risk making a fool of myself, basically, or people saying mean stuff about me on Twitter? It's because I know I've got this incredible backhouse staff that are working to, to facilitate that. And, and, and with those, there are key individuals, of course, you know, the people that saved my life, but the people that also saw something in me and went, yeah, we're going to take a chance on this guy. You know, Channel 4 took a huge chance on me, you know, putting me into the Paralympic lineup in 2016 for the Rio Paralympics. You know, I, I, the BBC have had me as part of the commemorations for the, the D-Day commemorations for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. I mean, that is, that is everything to me. That's like, that is the most, you know, that is the, one of the most poignant things I've ever done in my career. But at the same time, that was hugely important to lots of people. And so why risk it on little old JJ? Well, clearly they saw something in me and they gave me an opportunity. And I, and I took that opportunity. And I and as again, I stood up proudly and I made the most of it.
1: You've talked about the positivity that's come out of all of the badness that happened to you and the loss of your friend's life. But what about the challenges? I remember t- two distinctive moments on that pilgrimage with you in particular. There were many funny, as you say, beer nights and, and walking around and challenging. But actually, there were there were lots more. But let's talk about three. One, I remember on the first night when me, you and the other guys got put up in our first location and everybody kind of turned to you, you know, where everyone thought, oh, should we offer help? Do you offer help? What do you do? It's an awkward situation. What did you feel like? So there was that moment. There was another moment when we we jumped up on some horses And I remember you saying, this is going to be hard because I don't have the strength in my arm to control the horse in the way that I should be able to. And I know during the times we were going around the mountains and the horses were eating grass, you found that quite challenging, but laughed it off. Uh, But I knew deep down there was a, it was a challenge and it was hard. And I kept thinking to myself, here's a man that's been out there, guns and bombs and stuff. And, you know, Challenging, pulling a horse. And then there was one moment I think I was leading the charge in going from one location to another. And then you just came running past me. I was at the front walking, you know. We had these moments where we all went off on our own and did a few kilometers walking through the heat or whatever. And all of a sudden I heard dunk dum dunk dunk dum, then there you are trotting past me. See you at the other end, Raf. And I was sweating and and everything. So there were moments on that journey where I saw a different JJ. How do you find those challenges, JJ, when people come and they think that they need to help you?
2: The physical adjustment is one thing. And yeah, I, you know, I stand here and I talk in very positive senses. But, you know, I, I find stuff to this day frustrating things, which are people sort of say, what do you struggle with? But it, it's the daft little things that get me. So the best example that ever happened was I every year uh, in the military when you've been injured and they retain you in service. So you got to understand I was I was still in the military until I was fixed. But every year you have to go to a medical board where you sit in front of three doctors and they go, "Yep. Yeah, Work still ongoing. Have another year's contract." You know, and and here's what, you know, and this is the plan. And so, you know, I st- I the first time I ever went through that, I was quite nervous about them sort of, you know, saying, "Actually, you're fixed." Out the door. Now, that was obviously not the case. But, you know, as, as they stood there and they asked me about the sort of daily challenges that I faced and I explained certain things to them, the moment that it was absolutely just completely summed up was at the end and they, they rubber stamped it and said, yep, you know, clear for another year. I stood up, I turned around and you literally, you're in full uniform and you have to march and all that sort of stuff. I turned around to march out and the door had a doorknob and not a door handle. And, you know, doorknobs are the, I mean, who invented a shiny metal disc to be the thing to, do you have to, t- I mean, it's ridiculous. Anyway, I looked at it and I knew straight away, I'm not gonna be able to turn that. And so I walked over and i started faffing with it. And one of these high ranking medical colonels had to stand up and open the door for me. And that, that was it, you know, that's those moments where you go, I was a raw Marine commando. I, I could, you know, I did extraordinary things physically. And now I can't even open a door sometimes. And those things happen to me every single day. And, you know, my kids, are, my kids are growing up and they're getting heavier. And, you know, I know the day that I will be able to lift my daughter up is coming sooner than it will for most people. You know, she's, she's three years old, almost four. And, and sometimes when I lift her, I'm going, this is, this is getting too much. Um, and so, you know, the, the, there's that. That's, that's where I am physically and frustratedly. But the other thing you have to adjust to is, is asking for help. You know, in the Marines, we we all help each other in the Marines. That's the whole thing. It's all teamwork and you're all looking out for one another. But actually, you never really ask for help. Guys just kind of swoop in and help when, it. you know, the, the, someone's there with a cup of tea or whatever when it's needed. But like, if you forget a bit of kit... Uh, um, uh, you don't go asking for it. So, you know, asking for help is really not in our nature. And it's not in men's nature either, Raf, you know that, you know, the, You know when we look at the mental health side of things it's because we're closed books and we're, you know, and we man up and we get on with it. So adjusting to, to to being dependent and asking for help was huge. But by the point, you know, of the pilgrimage, yeah, I was determined that I, you know, a lot of what we did on the pilgrimage, I suppose, was the fact that, you know, I was, I was putting a brucksack on, I was putting one foot in front of the other for two or three weeks or whatever we did. Now, don't get me wrong, I was carrying probably a, a fourth or a fifth of the weight that I did when I was in Afghanistan. And we were, you know, even as hot as Spain was, it was still hotter in Afghanistan. So, you know, it was still a step down from what I've experienced before. But the fundamentals were the same. And on day one, there was a little part of me that was like, what if I can't do this anymore? What if I've lost the thing which you know defines you as a marine basically carrying heavy stuff long distances what if i've lost that and it took me a few hundred meters and i was like i think i'm going to be all right but 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 it was all those things it was the pulling the sleeping bag out and packing the bag and it was it, and you're right i was i was going to do it myself or the challenge was going to be turning and going can you help me here mate but that, but you know we were we were We were a close knit group and I would have asked you guys for anything if I'd really needed it. And I can't think of any specifics, but I I know I probably will have uh, at certain points. What about the
1: future, JJ? So you've gone from, you know, Helmand in Afghanistan, Royal Marine to medalist at the Invictus Games. And you're now currently
2: doing what? At the top line of my, of, of my, of my profession or, you know, what my business card would say is I'm a TV presenter or, and radio presenter for that matter. Um, but that's, you know, that can that's plan A, but you've got to have a solid plan B as well. Cause we all know that my hair could fall out tomorrow and people could decide that they don't want to look at me anymore. You know, it, it can be fickle and or, you know, I could mess up and I could rightfully have my career taken away from me. So you know, I so there are other things that I sort of do, but the pleasant thing for the time being is that the phone keeps ringing, and I I am able to function as a full time presenter. So my mainstay sits within sports. Uh, I pretty much do everything except football. Um, so obviously this year I should have been, you know, I should be heading off to the Olympics right now, uh, and then onto the Paralympics after that. We should have had an Invictus Games this year. You know, I I I have been on a trajectory to work on those things since. You know, I landed my first real gig in the Paralympics in 2016 and I came back from that going, this is it. I love this. I love live television. I love the risk, the thrill. I love being at these incredible sporting events. And I also love the opportunity to shine light on human endeavor and great stories and know that it has this great social impact if it's done right. And so, you know, I've been lucky to go and work on the Commonwealth Games and the Winter Paralympics and, you know, a whole host of things within sport. Uh, the London Marathon, year after year, that's such a wonderful event, you know, built around charity and, 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 and as I say, this wonderful human endeavour. So that's what I want to keep doing, telling people's stories. Just a couple
1: of very pointed questions. What does second chance mean to you,
2: JJ, from your own experience? You know, I'm very aware that I should be in a box in the ground. And I'm very aware that I'm not even on plan B right now. I'm on plan X. You know, I've, I've, I've tripped through a whole bunch of different scenarios. Um, but you know, the big thing that, that you learn from this experience is, is the benefit of hindsight and perspective. It's being able to look back at the experiences you've had and take something from them. Like, you know, from simply put, you know, none of my good stories start with remember that time that the weather was perfect. Remember that time that everything went to plan. You know, the best experiences I've had in my life, although they were miserable at the time, is when you were really up against it. Um and and, and you and you somehow pulled it off. And and you failed at things. You know, you failed and you learned and you improved. And that's the thing about, you know, what you know, whilst that's it that's made me grow as a person, it has also it has also showed me that I need to give other people second chances and i've I've always been a forgiving person in fairness, and i'm you know you know me I'm pretty easygoing. but it but you know I want to try harder than ever to help other people and and particularly to give people second chances because you know whatever it is in life that they've failed at you know uh, that you've got to realize that that's that's okay and and actually what they need is your help, and one of the things that we particularly when I work in the Paralympics, the Invictus Games, and we talk about disability, for example. One of the things that holds us back is the fear of saying something wrong. You probably, you know, experience this yourself, you know, in other walks of life and other forms of uh, diversity, but it's the fear of saying the wrong thing. So we say nothing. And actually it's because we vilify people for getting it wrong. And we don't just turn around to people and say, well, actually don't say that anymore, or that's wrong because of this. And you've educated that person and you've improved them as a person. Instead, we jump on them, we batter them and we call them, you know, all sorts of cr- cruel things. And that's that's not even giving people a first chance, quite frankly, let alone a second chance.
1: No, it is so important. I, I, I totally agree with you to let people make the mistake. And by making that mistake, you can help inform and correct or whatever. And that gives them a sub a second chance to sort of come at it again now I know better maybe I will or whatever but look JJ I'm not going to keep you any longer I just think it's extraordinary and as I say on that journey we went on together you kept calling people a legend and I believe you've become and you're creating your own legendary so um, I can only wish you well in, in your career and keep Telling people your story, because I think as you rightly said at the beginning of this, it kind of hits people who, who don't have to go through the same experience. Sometimes people are just depressed in their head. And sometimes hearing somebody with an inspirational, motivational story can be enough to make them think, actually... I can do something like that. They don't have to be on that trike making that race, but they could be behind the scenes preparing the bike for someone like you who got in it and rode it, or they could be behind that camera. I still believe that there is a place to give everybody a second chance in life. So thank you very much for joining me today.
2: Much appreciated. Cheers, mate. You're a legend.
1: If you've enjoyed listening to this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted and leave a comment with your thoughts, suggestions and ideas. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited. original music by J. Rowe Productions, design work by Studio Minerva and myself, Raphael Rowe.
0: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one-dollar-per-month trial period at Shopify.com/work. Shopify.com/work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars